Hello and welcome to episode 63 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. It's me. What's up, Stan? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, buddy. I got nothing, man. It's just another week here. I I uh I did get to play a lot of magic this week, so that's I'm feeling good. I'm feeling I'm feeling like I'm I'm back in it. Tapping cards in real life. That's the best. Shuffle those double sleeved bad boys and girls. Also with us, the godfather, Dave Harberger. I'm just clicking this week. I had a lot of clicking again. Click, click, click. Clicking. I did figure out a new shortcut in Magic Online that I was very excited about. Is it a F6 through your turn? It's yield until next end step. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. Yes. I use that one for sure. I've been playing Magic Online for 10 years. Did not realize that existed. Is there a shortcut for that? Or do you just do like the sort of right click yield until next end step? I just did right click. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a good one. Yeah, I really like doing that when I have absolutely no possible actions except maybe fetching at my end step or like cashing in an opt. Stan, you were leaving fetch equity on the table there, like by like fetching during something just to annoy them. That's true. I'm leaving fetch equity on the table in that situation. Mm. On this week's episode, we'll take a look at the results from the weekend's modern and pioneer showcase events on Magic Online. I'm sure lots of people dropped fetch equity in that tournament. Then in the dive down, we recap some of the new cards and decks we've been testing in both Modern and Pioneer and take a closer look at what's been buzzing in both formats. But first, some housekeeping. We got an incredibly positive response to the changes to our Patreon structure last week, and we really appreciate everyone who joined the Dive Down Nation afterward as well as all of you who moved up a tier in your support. So this week, we have a lot of thanks to share, starting with our new patrons, Braden M., Jake D., Eric L., Jeremiah H., and Grant R. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon, and welcome to the Dive Down Nation. Also, special shout-outs to Jason H., Sean G., Travis C., Justin P., Jack J., and train for moving up a tier in your patreon support really means the world to us that you're sticking with us through thick and thin we love doing this for the patrons thanks everyone yeah if you didn't hear uh last week's episode we had a big announcement about our patreon changes and here's a quick summary of some of the new things that we're bringing to you all so three dollars an app those patrons now get access to our detailed show notes every friday when the episode goes live, it's usually like what 14, 16 pages on Google Notes. $5 and up patrons now get early access to our episodes as soon as we have the file back from our editor. They're also going to get a custom designed deck box when we reach our stretch goal of 500 bucks an episode. And now at $8, our Patreon exclusive playmats will get sent out to those people after four weeks at that tier. So some new stuff to look forward to every week, uh, cheaper 
play mats or easily more easily accessible play mats at least. So uh, thanks again for those who have joined, increased their tier, and we're looking forward to having some new people join the nation. So uh, let's talk about the new reviews we had this week. Cricket noises, cricket noises. We didn't have any. You know, I think a lot of our fans were voting with their dollar this week. Well, we appreciate that. Uh, but if you like us, try to get on Apple Podcasts and give us a text review. We'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the podcast. Uh, we'll give you a shout out the next week after you post it. And most importantly, it makes us feel good about ourselves. Definitely. Yeah, let us know what you like. And if you don't like the show, just keep that to yourself. <laughs> As always, if you'd like to support the show directly while playing Magic, you can check out ManaTraders.com, an online service that you can use to rent Magic online cards with coupon code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word. You can get 15% off your first three months of a Mana Traders subscri- subscription. Yeah, both of those words. <laughs> subscription. Both all that out of the way. Shane and I, we're tag-teaming the breakdown this week, but Dave, I have a feeling you've got some thoughts about the headline. We got an announcement of an announcement? We knew it was going to happen someday. We got a tweet from Wizards Magic today. What is today? It's Monday. Monday, March 1st. 2nd? Monday, March 2nd. That in one week from this message on March 9th, there will be abandoned restricted list updates. So mark your calendars. As previously announced, we plan to give advanced warning of any BNR updates going forward. My calendar is marked. <laughs> My calendar is Mark Rosewatered. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to drive to work and get that ban announcement. So we got something incoming. There's a lot of people talking about a lot of different things that they would like to have happen. And in fact, one of our intrepid members of the Dive Down Nation, Dom, put together a post that contains the hopes, predictions, and dreams of the members of the Dive Down Nation for what our banned and restricted predictions could be. Stan, would you like to take us through the results of the polling that we did, our little informal poll? The end of this poll is about... At maximum, it's 23. It's 23. N equals 23. It is not a scientific study, but let's see what people in our in our group thought. Yeah, so this poll was shared among the citizens of the Dive Down Nation via the Super Secret Slack channel. And it asks, essentially, four questions. What, if anything, would you like to see banned in modern, pioneer, as well as unbans in modern and pioneer? So, starting with the Pioneer ban, which had all 23 respondents participate, an overwhelming majority with 82.6%, that's 19 of the 23 respondents, voted for Dig Through Time as what they hope or at least expect to see a ban on Monday. Yeah, I think Dom tried to explain that it was what people's expectation were, expectations were, rather. Sometimes you just have to vote with your heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the vast majority think Dig's gone. A few people think a few other cards, like maybe Treasure Cruise or Inverter of Truth. But, yeah, by and large, people think Dig's gone. One person thought Underworld Breach might go. I think it's maybe someday. When you guys heard about this announced announcement, did you think that it might have to do with Pioneer? Was that on your radar? 
I thought the the first thing I thought of was Pioneer. Yes, to be honest. Yeah, I feel like they've been pretty they've been pretty ban happy with modern over the past few months, and so maybe they just want to let that ride for a bit as their you know legacy like format now. And Pioneer is the sort of more active ban, so I, I kind of went straight to Pioneer as well. Do you agree with the majority of the voters in Dom's poll? It seems like the most likely card, right? Because it's really one of the primary ways that Inverter is able to succeed and be so consistent. I think that Watsi would like to kind of knock the consistency out of that deck, but maybe not take the sales out of the combo itself yet. Mm -hmm. But remains to be seen. But that's not all. We got pretty big responses to the question of a modern ban as well, where 19 people participated in that question and 14 of the respondents selected once upon a time for a ban in modern. Ugh, dangerous, dangerous card. Also dangerous purchase on my part. Picking up, I picked up some Russian ones. Uh, they're on their way. They'll be here like in two weeks for just to finish off newer builds of green Tron. I know they're going to get banned in route. I'm really sad about that. I, I, I really like playing once upon a time. But it just feels like everybody's starting to look at it. I don't know if people really feel like modern is as, as messed up as Pioneer is right now. What do you think, Stan? Well, I participated in this poll. And in this particular question, my vote was for Field of the Dead. Mm-hmm. That could go, sure. I've been on the record saying that I think Once Upon a Time is okay. And I know maybe that's a hot take. I don't I know that perhaps not all my co-hosts agree with me, but I actually find that Field of the Dead is a more egregious offender. It's definitely a card I do not like seeing. It is worth noting that two people also said no changes will happen to Modern. Or at least that was their prediction. I think it's very likely that nothing could happen to Modern personally, but we'll see. Yeah. And so what in our Pioneer Unban, we kind of had not really anything conclusive, just uh, nine responses, some scattered thoughts about unbans. I don't think anyone thinks anything's getting unbanned there. But the modern unban was pretty interesting in that, what, uh, five people still said none. So I lied. It's not interesting <laughs> either. Yeah, we had one person vote for Green Sun Zenith. Keep fighting the good fight. Three people voted for Preordain. I can get into that. Which is like, what? Come on. One person voted for Splinter Twin. Okay. And two people, not Stan, but two people voted for Faithless Looting. (laughs) I see you. I don't know about that one. But we'll find out next Monday, and we'll definitely talk about it then. Do you guys think that this whole thing is just kind of like, I mean, I appreciate that they made an announcement of an announcement, but like, it's hard to track this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, I find myself kind of wondering what I'm supposed to do with this information short of keeping an eye on Twitter next Monday and maybe like making some speculative sales. Cuz I think for me personally, I don't I own a place that of Dick through time. I haven't cast it ever. Probably makes sense to try to move that if I can find a a decent buyer. Oh yeah. I immediately put my digs on buy list. And I put my English once upon a times on buy list because I have the Russian ones coming anyways. So I was just like, you know, I don't think Dig's going to go up or go down too much if uh, if it stays here. But if it gets banned, it's going to go down to like a buck. So I might as well take some cash while I can. I mean, I think this is all good financial advice, but I'm mostly curious about how am I going to stay up to date with whether a ban is incoming or not? There's no place for me to look. 
I don't know, Wizards Magic Twitter. <laughs> Dave, do you have any plans for this? I do have a plan for this. Your friends, the hosts of the Dive Down, recently purchased the URL mtgbandswen.com. <laughs> That's right, mtgbandswen.com, the place that you can go check out and see if a band is incoming and what day it's been announced for. And if there is no band announced, we'll just say no on it. <laughs> it's like those websites where it's like, is a card going to be banned in a week? Yes, no. Yeah, but this one's just going to say the date that the ban is going to happen or no, or maybe we'll figure out something more fun to do with it. But keep an eye on this space. I think that mtgbandswen.com will be up by the time that this podcast launches on Friday. Yeah, it might just have a little like animated construction worker gif, you know, maybe some rotating cats or something, but there'll be something there. It might literally just say Monday, March 9th in big letters. I re- I'm old enough to remember dancing CGI babies when that was all that the internet was. Dancing babies and pets.com. We'll think about it, but check it out, everybody. MTGBandsWhen.com. Okay, that's enough speculation for one episode. Now let's talk about some actual tournament results. Last weekend, Magic Online held its seasonal showcase challenge tournaments for Modern, Pioneer, and other formats, which we refuse to acknowledge. These are also known as Mocks, which is short for Magic Online Champions Showcase. And though anyone can play in these events, they are only open to players who qualify by collecting qualifier points via mtgo leagues and preliminaries hold on stan do they do they really change the name to the champions showcase instead of the championship series all i know is what i learned from the wizards website which i doubt is lying to me well there are a lot of pages with some questionable granular organization so oh you know i always navigate that site map (laughs) straight to the site map so these showcase events are eight rounds They're Swiss with a cut to top eight. And the top eight finalists get an automatic invitation to the Champions Showcase later in the year. So it's a lot of showcase events. And then the winners of the showcases get invitations to Pro Tours. And long story short, these showcase events are designed to attract MTGO's best players. So we're going to take a look at what this class of competitors is doing in constructed play right now. And we figured, at least for Modern, it might be a nice indicator of what people might expect ahead of SCG Regionals Weekend, which is right after this podcast launches on Friday. So, starting with a Modern Showcase, we've got Top 32, and we'll break down in the most detail the Top 8 and then talk a little bit about the Top 32 meta. The winner of this event was a Black-Green Titan deck. The main deck, essentially mono-green. So the usual, black-green titan, right? Yeah, classic classic archetype. Classic black-green titan. Golgari titan. Essentially a mono-green main deck, but it didn't have a number of important black sideboard cards, including Cranial Extraction and Memoricide, plus Abrupt Decay, Assassin's Trophy, and Fatal Push. But those first two, Extraction and Memoricide, looks to me like tuning for the mirror. Since these are the type of cards that you pick a card name, search opponent's library, take them out of there move on with your life sure why not what do you think this might be targeting and and, and worth noting both of these cards are for non-land cards mm-hmm. so you you can't use memory side to take out a land do you think there's anything else that cranial extraction and memory side 
might be in the sideboard for besides opposing primeval titans i mean there could be you know combo decks that exist out there like maybe you want to get rid of like a heliod to stop a combo from going off quickly like one of the combos on like a heliod deck or a grinding station perhaps exactly up next we had eldrazi tron in second place this is a version that had a sideboard sundering titan which seems to be one of the popular replacements for Microsoft Lattice 98. Yeah, this looks like it could do some work. Yeah, especially in this Titan meta. If you're not familiar with Sundering Titan, it is eight generic mana for an artifact creature golem. When Sundering Titan enters the battlefield or leaves the battlefield, choose a land of each basic land type, then destroy those lands. Dry it out of the Elysian Grove. Get out of here. Wow, you just get five lands. Yeah, what is that? Armageddon, more or less? I mean, Armageddon didn't kill just your opponent's lands. Keep an eye out for Sundering Titan. Yep. Bring in your disdainful strokes. In third place, Amulet Titan, which was down to one main deck Azusa. Everyone's on this Dryad of the Elysian Grove lately. Yeah, and this third place deck was piloted by Punt Then Wine, Mm. the uh, perennial leaderboard leader and uh, Titan expert. Fourth place, another Etron deck. No Sundering Titan, but instead a sideboard Mindslaver. Hmm. Grab that with your Karn and cast it. Will do. Fifth place, Crabvine. Pretty stock build. Sixth place, Bant Control, hmm. which is essentially blue-white control in my opinion, but it is splashing green for Uro and Kawadal. Yep. This is the McWin Sauce kind of championed snow control list, essentially. Got your Astrolabes in here as well. Yeah, no Stoneforge Mystics, though, because it does have some Supreme Verdicts, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, the type of Planeswalkers you see in blue-white decks, as well as uh, Archmage's Charm and some of the other counter spells that I'm familiar with from blue-red control decks more than blue-white control. So it kind of seems like this whole new control amalgamation. What do y'all think about Uro? I think that's an okay card. I mean, I don't know. Yes. Have not bought any of those, unfortunately, but... David. You know? It was a pick-to-click. I've been losing to Uro. That card has inevitability. It gains life every time it attacks, and it's a 6-6. So usually when it attacks, it... <laughs> the coast is clear. Well, a little hint. The deck I was playing this week did not care about Uro at all. Yeah, sometimes you don't. I think they call that a tease. Seventh place, another Eldrazi Tron deck with another sideboard Sundering Titan. And in eighth place, Junt. Classic Junt, but for four sideboard Fulminator Mage. Yeah, why not? Junt, you know, you throw enough darts, you're going to hit the bullseye. I was looking at the meta shares the other day, just at Goldfish in general. I was surprised to see that Junt was fourth. It certainly is. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's always in the leagues, for one, so that, that keeps it there. And like we did when we did our math a few episodes ago on the modern metagame analysis, you know, there's it's it's always showing up somewhere. You know, it's always at least putting you know a copy or so in the top eight, top sixteen. Well, let's talk about the meta share of this tournament very quickly. We do have the top thirty-two deck lists, and the clear winner is Eldrazi Tron. Yeah, it was outrageous. Ten copies in top thirty-two. Whew. Followed by various versions of Titan, so that includes Amulet as well as these blue-green versions. 
which only had four copies in the top 32. And then like after that, it's like our other piece of the, you know, the pie. It's just tons of twos and ones. Yeah. Urza, Storm, Mono Red, Crab Vine, Band Control, and Four Color Shadow all had two copies. Blue Moon, Red Green Ramp, kind of like Ponza, but no land destruction. Jun Shadow, Classic Jund, and Mono Green Tron all had one copy. Poor Mono Green Tron. You don't have Matter Reshaper, you're not a good deck anymore, apparently. <laughs> so one of these big takeaways for me at least, looking at the top contenders of the top thirty-two, big mana. Plus inevitability seems like the name of the game right now. Especially between Titan decks and Eldrazi Tron decks. What's the inevitability that you see in the Eldrazi Tron? What's that 5-5 Trample Haste? Reality, Reality Smasher. Smasher. Yeah, that card's pretty good. Sure. It's, it's, I mean, it does die. It does die. But it takes two cards at least. Unless it gets hit by a sweeper. But, you know, who's running those? Very few decks are running those. Band Control. Okay. I got to agree. Looking at this, uh, the metagame, the way it's worked out the last week and seeing this event, it does, it does seem like your big mana is still the big man on campus. Yeah. So I, I'm looking at these decks. I'm, I'm still thinking about our metagame analysis a few weeks ago. And is this kind of like a rock, paper, scissors meta where we have like our, our biggest, big, big mid-range deck of Eldrazi Tron. We have the big mana deck of Titan. And then we have the aggro decks specifically right now, like Mono Red Prowess is kind of the du jour. And then what Eldrazi Tron's chalices are going to really knock out things like Mono Red Prowess. And if in fact decided to pop up, you know, the chalice would eat that alive. But then I imagine that Titan decks can beat Eldrazi Tron, but what do I know? It seems like there's tons of Eldrazi Tron, so maybe it's just what people decide to bring to the tournament. What do you think about this, people who play more modern than I do? I've never been on either side of the Eldrazi Tron Titan matchup. I think one of the keys there is that Eldrazi Tron can have these busted hands that are casting turn two Thought Not Seer and turn three Reality Smasher. So if you've got an early Thought Not Seer, you can pluck a Titan out of that opponent's hand or another important payoff and really slow them down. Since, you know, from playing against Titan, I have learned that once they resolve a Titan, you are so far behind that your best chance is trying to slow them down along the way. Mm -hmm. And likewise, Etron has Chalice of the Void. If they can get Chalice up to two, that's not bad against Titan. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just think that people seem to be bringing like one of those three decks in this tournament. I think we saw the aggressive end of things be pretty far down and also not a lot of combo here either like only a couple storms there was you know none of the grinding station type stuff there was none of the what, what other like no, no devoted druid type things that could beat titan through no interaction yeah it's a surprise that the stack based combo deck that's most present here is storm yeah in these mm-hmm. top 32 which is a deck that doesn't come up too much these days but uh, it's always kind of like right there on the edge uh, there's definitely a little bit more uh, shadow than I was expecting to, given the way that the metagame has been trending. But, you know, it's still still not a ton. Yeah, and just to clarify, Chalice of the Void on 2 is, is much better against Titan Field than Amulet Titan, because then you're hitting cards like Explore, plus Once Upon a Time, plus the Sakura Tribelder. You can also even play it on 0 to take care of Summoner's Pact, which 
pretty good. Question. Would you guys play in this meta? Does this look like an environment that you would want to play modern in? I guess that depends on the environment you're talking about, right? Like, this is the environment we see on Magic Online. But I've been to the LGS a little bit more than usual. I know that you've been you're going to game stores and stuff like that, Stan. I don't see the same meta at the store. I still see the same fair decks that I've seen before. People love the mid-range. They love their stone blade. They love their blue-white control. They love their creature strategies that are also fair. I've been personally doing pretty well uh, taking Dredge back to the store, getting some store credit there, going like 3-1 because the the fair decks are there. I think that's going to eat more f- most fair decks alive. But you know the the Magic Online metagame is going to be a little bit different. But I think for most of our listeners just headed to the LGS, uh, they can probably still play whatever they want unless it has a terrible matchup against uh, what Jund because every game store has got twenty five percent Jund players. Hmm. I gotta say this. Top 32 doesn't look too much like the meta I've seen on Moda the last couple of weeks either, where I feel like I've played against a lot of Urza hmm. and not any Etron ever, basically. So it's kind of interesting to see that it's towards the top of this tournament because in the leagues, it definitely doesn't feel like I run into it that much. Although, you know, our friend the Pen Sword certainly has been posting on Twitter recently about how often he runs into Etron in the league. So I must just be running kind of weird. Well, the app is probably out to get them as well. <laughs> I guess my one question, my one last question for you guys, do you think there are any sleeper decks that people aren't prepared for in this type of meta or environment? Let's say you're trying to prepare for SCG regionals or another competitive REL event. What should people maybe look to as a solution for this meta? Boy, I, I think it's a hard question right now. I'm, I'm very unsure about the way that I would approach it. I think think that um, part of me wants to di- dive back into aggro decks and see if that's just enough to get through this. Although running into Uro as mono red prowess is just kind of LOL. Yeah. So Or Chalice. That's what scares me. You know, Chalice is very bad, but you can find your ways around it generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you just get draws where you can't catch up. But Play those foreshadowing sprees. Yeah, I mean, you have cards like that around. Uh, but yeah, Uro is very scary in this kind of thing. I do have an announcement. Hmm. And that is, I will be going to SCG Regionals. What? And Stan doesn't even know this yet. I'm just making an announcement right here on the podcast. Arms are raised. Bruh! So Stan, you're going to have to hang out with me on Saturday. Oh, awesome. I'm I'm thrilled. Should we wrap up this episode now and just go practice? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll take it up from here, guys. <laughs> Um, well, that's all for this week's episode. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just me and the nation now. So um, let's let's breeze through this Pioneer Showcase because I think there's some potentially bad writing on the wall that's also upside down. Uh, our top eight, Phil Helmuth, noted MTGO grinder, not the Phil Helmuth, but a Phil Helmuth impersonator. Are we sure? Um, he has said on uh, Twitter that he is not the Phil Helmuth the poker player. Uh, they ran the mono white devotion three Gideon of the trials main uh, Belovo with mono black aggro. It's a little bit different. There's some new tech with two graveyard marshal, which is a two drop three, two that lets you pay two black to exile a creature card from your graveyard to make a two, two black zombie. I suspect this is just, there is a three, two beater, but I could be wrong. The exile clause is nice, but 
you know, it's a little bit expensive, but this deck does want to use its mana over time. Uh, Ale Milan 19 with Inverter. Uh, Batuina, a noted uh, Magic Online grinder. Uh, he's, he's just a Tour de Force. He was on Mono White Devotion with some interesting tech. Two main deck, rest in peace. Two main deck, Tomic, the Advokist, and three, Gideon of the Trials. He was teching against the expected meta. Gross. Yeah, and he was probably correct to do so. You know, we had Roman Me on Inverter right after him in fifth. Uh, Gold Ducat on Inverter right after that. That's another super well-known Magic Online grinder, by the way. Oh, word. Uh, Stainerson, another name I've seen before on Mono Green Karn. I'm going to be talking about that later, so stay tuned. And Paco El Flaco on Bant Spirits. So our top 32 counts include 11 Inverter, over a third of our top 32. Wow. Six mono white devotion, a quarter of our top thirty-two. Bant spirits, uh, what? That's a sixth of our top thirty-two. Then we have mono black with three, mono green Karn with three, uh, five color Niv with two, and then one ofs of uh, Golgari Stompy, Lotus Breach, and Sultai Delirium. So, pretty wild. A little bit unexpected, even though we all know Inverter is pretty great. But yeah, over a third of the top thirty-two being Inverter is pretty frightening you know when you have players like uh what sandy dog mtg a noted burn player taking inverter out for a spin you know things are a little bit dire yeah i'll tell you this i think i would rather play in a modern tournament right now than a than a pioneer one i mean unless you're heavily teched against inverter i would i would guess monoway devotion isn't the easiest deck in the world to play against either so no it is not uh and you know, one of the questions I have is how hard are these mono white devotion decks just relying on Gideon of the Trials to take down Inverter? Or do you think like they just have a clock that's also being presented in case Inverter stumbles at all? So like, you know, they can overwhelm and interact with a lot of creature based strategies and still maybe rely on trials to just buy themselves one or two turns just to get the damage in they need. Yeah, I mean, they're relying on it enough to have to have trials spike up to $30 today. Yeah, remember when I said $13 last week, y'all? You got to start listening to me, including myself, because I paid almost twice that uh, for a couple copies as soon as I saw it starting to spike a little bit. You should have listened to me, Shane, like eight months ago when I was playing it in blue-white control. I know. Well, it's like I said, it's just one of those cards that it has a totally unique ability that... You know, when it's a couple bucks, just just grab it. Uh, Bant Spirits is still holding a place in our top tier of strategies, I'd say. You know, the disruption on the clock never seems to be bad. Azoria Spirits is really not seeming like it's taking over the Bant Spirits strategy right now. People still seem to like the Coco. Uh, we see Mono Green Karn starting to show up. Um, we had one in the top eight, but the other two copies were pretty low in the top 32. So it's not like they, uh, you know, were really high up there i'm going to talk about that later so i was gonna say have we talked about that deck before no we're gonna we're gonna all right uh old stalwarts like mono black and niv are still showing up even though their their win rates statistically haven't been that fantastic with some of the mtgmeta.io stats from tournaments breach appears to be kind of hated out right now i think you know it spiked the tournament but when people have all their damping spheres and maybe some other counter spells there's going to be some issues for it I kind of look at Breach as like the future dredge or affinity of the Pioneer format. You know, people forget about it. They're like, well, maybe I only need one Damping Sphere now. And 
Breach takes two out of the top eight or something like that. The lack of delirium surprised me. It's a it's a popular and powerful deck, but maybe people are sort of saying, you know what? It's it's fun to play mid range, but I want to win this showcase, so I'm going to bring inverter. Yeah, I think that's what it's looking right, like right now. And when you couple that with the fact that we just got an announcement about a ban announcement, I guess you can kind of see why. Yeah. A little bit unnerving, but uh, we'll see what happens next week. Right now, I played a bunch of Pioneer this week. I'm still really enjoying the format. I think at the LGS, I'm not seeing Inverter. I'm not seeing Breach. Uh, I'm seeing a ton of variety of strategies. I'm seeing Grixis mid-range. I'm seeing Mono White. I'm seeing Sultai Delirium. I'm seeing Mono Red. I think it's still an excellent format for you know anyone listening to this can basically take anything that they have fun with to their store or even through a league because there's a lot of decks out there. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because that kind of leads naturally into what we're going to be talking about on the dive down this week, which is new decks and kind of new pieces of tech that are maybe on the fringes of Modern and Pioneer and about ready to uh, pop out into the mainstream. And so if that interests you, stay with us. So this week, we're going to do a little twist on our patented Sleeve Believe Heave uh, system for rating decks. And what we're going to do on this episode of The Dive Down is take a look at a few different decks and pieces of strategy that, as I mentioned a moment ago, are kind of on the fringes of both modern and pioneer, things that interest us. But the thing that's interesting about them is that they all seem to showcase new cards that we're familiar with being used in old strategies or old strategies that have been revived in certain ways or just uh, kind of new takes on cards moving from one format to another. So this week we decided it'd be fun for us each to kind of pick a deck that we thought was interesting and kind of bring that to our listeners and kind of talk about it. Uh, each one has a twist on an old idea. And so to start the Sleeve Believe Heave in the dive down this week, we're going to Shane with a new take on Green Karn and Pioneer. Yeah, so if you are keeping your ear to the ground at all, You've probably been hearing about seeing uh, a new variant on the old mono green devotion strategies in Pioneer. And so just like those decks, it's got mana elves, it's got Nykthos, it's got greens planeswalkers, but we have a new walker added to the mix, and that is Karn the Great Creator. Not him. Oh, yes. Oh, man. Again? I I can't quit him. (laughs) This deck just sort of appeared out of nowhere at the Pioneer Challenge on February 23rd, but I really think it had to have been somewhere else before that because two separate players brought the exact same 75 and ran 6-1 and 5-2 in the tournament. Maybe it was a Patreon for you know some competitive team. Yeah, perhaps. Um, I didn't see it on uh, Lotus Box, but there's plenty of people who are making content and monetizing it, and they're smart for doing so. So good for them if they did. Um, aspiring spike then I think was given the list or given a link to the list from somebody. He tweaked it and he proceeded to trophy, I believe three separate times with the list. He said, wow. And that's when I heard about it. I started testing with it. A canister took it to a five Oh and a prelim. Of course, uh, people have been pretty hyped about the return of mono green devotion. 
And if you listen to this pod in the past, you know that I'm a big fan of Crate and Karn. Uh, I played them in Mono Green Tron, Red Prison, Dota Druid variants, and now this deck that people have semi-creatively been calling Mono Green Karn. Uh, what are you going to do? We can't we can't think of cool serial-based names any longer, I guess. Yeah, they just don't stick the way they used to. They don't pop the way they used to. It's called Corn Pops. Is this more like Tron, or is this more like a different deck? I think it's just sort of adding a new angle to pressure the opponent, right? So it's saying, here's the same old threats that you had to deal with before. Here's my big creatures. Here's my fast Nyssa. Here's my fast Vivian. But now it's saying, hey, I've got a bunch of mana, and I've got some time, and I've got a Karn the Great Creator on turn three that can get a lot of tech pieces from the sideboard. And Vivian, if she sticks on the board, can get a cool creature from the sideboard that costs a whole bunch of mana. And so I think that it's not trying to do prisony things because, you know, unlike in modern, Karn doesn't have those awesome silver bullets to tutor up, right? We have a weaker pool of artifacts to select from. And that's where things, I think, get a little bit more interesting because the effects are less game-breaking and you have to start to think about, like, am I balancing my worst matchups? Am I trying to cover the widest variety of matchups that I'm going to see? And so I think that's kind of, you know, people are, are talking immediately about what's our wishboard looking like? How are we tuning this? What are we teching against? I like this. I don't like that. And I think that's a lot of fun to be building in that new realm that we weren't doing before. So the general strategy of this deck is, like before, have a hand with some acceleration, have some elves, some nykthos, you know, that's all there. You want all that. But you also have the new Theros Beyond Death card of Wolf Willow Haven, which is a two-mana land enchantment that when you tap the mana, you get a single green mana in addition. The first time I saw this card played against me, I was like, what? Exactly. This? Yep, I was really skeptical of it because I was like, this costs two CMC, and it doesn't seem that great. But I think it synergizes well with other pieces in the deck. Um, and one of those pieces of synergy is an additional form of acceleration that wasn't in the previous mono green decks of Voyaging Seder, which is just uh, one in a green, one, two, and you can tap it to untap a target land. So you can untap a land enchanted with Wolf Willow Haven. You can unchance uh, your, you can untap your Nykthos and get a bunch of mana off that. That's usually just a couple of those Voyaging Satyrs. I've seen it get cut. Um, right now, I still think it has enough utility to keep tweaking with, but it's probably on the chopping block potentially. How often do you end up sacrificing the Wolf Willow Haven for the wolf? I'm just bringing it up because we didn't read it. I know we're going to get letters if we don't recognize the, the last activated ability. Yeah, you can, you can pay four and a green and sacrifice it to make a 2-2 two, two wolf creature token um, during your turn. I think that that comes up. Sometimes you do have a ton of mana. You don't need that single little extra green to provide your, your early ramp. And so an extra creature can help, especially when you're, you, know, you, get a, you get a raft. You need to make a creature that maybe can... You can Vivian to fight a Planeswalker, for instance. That would come up in something like you know, Blue-White Control. So along with that acceleration, you want your payoffs, of course. You have, they're pretty streamlined. You, you, you typically have just playsets of like Voracious Hydra, that creature that scales really well with your mana. You can fight other creatures off the board or just get huge. You have your Vivian Arcbow Ranger at four. 
She can grow your creatures, give them trample. She can have them deal damage to other creatures or planeswalkers. Or importantly in this deck, uh, her minus five quickly gets cards out of your sideboard. So she comes down, tick her up once. The next turn you can tick her down and tutor something. Uh, Nessa who shakes the world is still insane. You know, gives you that huge ramp, gives you creatures out of your lands. She's just crazy and she can be cast pretty early in this deck. How early? On turn three. Wow. If you're lucky. Uh, That's early. That's early, guys. Oh, yeah. And then when she's online, you just have so much mana. And so it's just crazy. And she has your devotion really well. So uh, newest Planeswalker, of course, is Karn the Great Creator. Casting Karn on three, tutoring up a wishboard piece, you, you start closing the door on the opponent. And of course, because Karn and in some ways Vivian entices deck builders to ignore that typical sideboard for like the suite of singleton wishboard cards. That's what everyone's talking about. So what are you seeing in this deck? It's still in flux, but some of the things you see a lot of are like Walking Ballista, Tormod's Crypt, Pithing Needle, Damping Sphere, Graft Digger's Cage. One of the coolest pieces of tech, it's also the most game-breaking, is God Pharaoh's Statue, which is a six-mana artifact that if you're doing everything perfectly well, you can have it come down on like turn four. And that makes your opponent's spells cost two mana more. And then even pings the opponent for one at your end steps, you know, just for fun. And this is one of the most important pieces that you want to be racing for against decks like Inverter and Breach. You, know, you play that card on three, a little bit of ramp. You get that Tormod's Crypt for zero, maybe buy yourself a turn. Then you untap, get that God Pharaoh's Gift the next turn. And they're going to have a really hard time uh, winning from there if you have any board presence. Interesting. I don't think I ever thought I would see a card that card no in a constructed deck but on the other hand you know like you said there's not a lot of prison elements available for use in in pioneer but prison is one of the best applications for karn right and so apparently it seems like that's at a power level that works in pioneer some other interesting inclusions are like the great hinge which costs a lot but if you have any board presence is much less it can provide a lot of long-term value versus removal and control decks you get your verterous gear hulk which is an artifact creature can, can tutor it off of Karn or Vivian. It's just a huge beater. Uh, it can spread the counters around that it comes in with to make your board look a lot better than it did just a turn ago. You have Heart of Kirin that can block for your Karn or anything the turn it comes down. Uh, it can also get in there and attack or block really nicely. Aligned Hedron Network. Weird and cool card. Four CMC artifact. It exiles all creatures with power five or greater until it leaves the battlefield. This is an awesome card against like aura decks that we talked about like last week. So uh, you have a really hard time removing these creatures for value uh, or removing them at all, even with like a fight. And it just comes in. It can be a total blowout. It's also good against like stompy decks with things like Lovestruck Beast or Steel Leaf Champion or Ronis. You know, those are all five or more power, so they can be a really big X for one. Yeah, Tutorable Wrath is very good. Yeah, I definitely... The first time I played it against an Auras deck, I was like, oh yeah, this is not coming out because people do like the Auras decks, especially on Magic Especially Online. in paper. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been seeing it a lot on Magic Online, actually. And in paper. Yeah, people love them in paper. I think Darksteel Citadel is a really awesome piece of tech. It's an artifact land, so you can get it with Karn, and it ensures that you like hit that land drop to cast your Nyssa the next turn or to cast a needed spell that you have in hand. Uh, Sky Sovereign Console Flagship is a, the five-mana big boat. It deals three damage to a creature or a planeswalker when it ETBs, and then every time it attacks, and it's a 6-5 flyer, 
with only like a crew three. So that just mauls opposing creature decks. What's interesting to me is the Vivian creature package is, you know, starts narrow and I think is getting narrower because she can't immediately get stuff like Karn is able to. And, but the Vivian creatures are truly game breaking in a lot of spots. Like you have your Ulamog, the ceaseless hunger for 10 mana. You have your Emrakul, the promise end, you know, for 13 on the card, but it might be like nine or 10. If you have cards in your graveyard, they're really easily castable in the mid to late game in this deck. Cause once you have everything stabilized, you have your Vivian on the board, you tick her down, you cast an Ulamog. A lot of people scoop just then you cast an Emrakul. A lot of people scoop just then they just have so much power and they're so hard to remove off the battlefield. Ugh. Yeah. Um, the deck typically has some tech pieces like scavenging ooze. It, it used to have like more questing beasts. I think that's already kind of being put to the wayside. Maybe like a life gain creature, like the new Satesian Petitioner or like Nylea's Disciple to get value off of your green devotion have shown up. So, Shane. Yeah, please. That was a lot. I know. It always is. You just read a bunch of cool cards. We got through that pretty fast. I'm feeling like a rising excitement from you. Oh, man. What's what's your bottom line on this deck? Whew. I mean, I got to say, just to cut to the chase, this might be my new favorite deck to be playing in Pioneer. I don't think it's like the best. I don't think it's broken. But it just has like so many lines of play. It has so many pieces to put into play. So many ways to like make mana, so many ways to think about how to maximize every turn and maximize every card in your 75, that it's really fun while being also really powerful. And that's a good combination for me. That kind of sounds like Mono Green Tron almost. I mean, it doesn't play out like it though to me. Like it's not just like I have a ton of mana and I'm going to top deck something good. It can be like that. Um, and I think that the... The end game is similarly powerful because of the opposition and pioneer often can't deal with some of the huge cards that you are getting like an Ulamog or something like that. I mean, you get to tutor for your best game breaker cards. Yes, but you have to be able to untap and cast them, which sometimes, you know, can be stymied by your opponent, of course, but yeah, but at least you don't have to draw them. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you do get to the point where you can have some pretty cruddy board states. You know, I've learned against certain strategies that a card in my opener is actually not that great because there are, there's not, there's some artifacts that just don't exist to shore up certain matchups or shore them up in the way that you really need them to be. And so I think that it's not, you know, I can't go get ensnaring bridge against aggressive decks or something like that as much as I'd love to. Um, I ran this on Magic Online quite a bit this week. I took it to the LGS for two Pioneer events. My my wife was out of town, so I took advantage of that by just getting to the game store to be social, and it was a lot of fun. It was really thinky, and it just it just stomps so many strategies. This deck, it's just it's a really you know thought provoking and thought requiring deck. More thinky relative to what strategies in Pioneer, because you've been a proponent of. Pioneer is a pretty complex and sophisticated format. Yeah. I mean, let's just, I mean, I, I know, I think my decisions are more complex than when I was playing like mono red all weekend at the GP or something like that, or, you know, linear strategies like, you know, mono blue devotion I was messing around with, or what else have I been playing in pioneer or SRAM auras, things like that. I think that those, they do require thinking. Of course, every good magic game requires thinking. 
But I think that this deck, I have to plan my turns out better. I mean, in the next turn, the turn after that, what could my opponent be doing? What do I need to try to draw into? And I definitely messed up a lot. And when I mess up a lot with my sequencing or with my tutor targets, I realize that I'm not thinking enough. So this deck performs really well against mid-range and creature strategies because you're just kind of like the biggest of the big mid-range decks. It just goes over the top of a lot of those strategies. Um, and it has so many ways to just remove creatures, outclass creatures, and, and just get in there. I think one of the things I really liked is figuring out different ways to make a lot of mana because there's a lot of detailed counting in terms of am I going to... How much mana can I make off this Nykthos? Do I want to cast something before I even use this Nykthos? If I untap this with my with my Nyssa, how much mana am I making? If I retap it, can I afford to retap this Vigilance creature? I definitely did some really stupid stuff. Like I forgot to attack, like just do like a, a free attack with like a 3-3 Vigilance uh, Nyssa creature because I was just so excited about making more mana with it. It's just all these little things and little lines and sequencing issues that you have to remember. Um, like So one instance I had was against Mono Red Aggro, and the opponent was at 19, and I was going to die the next turn because they had a Ramanap Ruins. Like, even if I cleared their board, uh, they had a Ramanap Ruins, so I was dead. I figured out how to make, like, 36 mana. <laughs> right? Whoa. Yeah. Was that enough, Shane? No, they were at 19. So I, I, even if I tutored for the Ballista, I was like, I think maybe it was 34. I was like two off. And like, I figured, like, I realized, like, I probably should have, like, if I did one different attack, I probably could have won that game. Um, so I think, ultimately, I think it's rewarding. I think it's, uh, these, these different powerful pieces are cohesive in a really synergistic way. So it's rewarding for me. It's challenging for my opponent. I think the deck has some areas of weakness, though, like every good deck should, or every, I guess, fair deck that's going to stick around should. I think the blue-white control matchup feels horrendous because you're almost never like fast enough to put a ton of pressure on them. Uh, they can stabilize. They can counterspell anything you have that really matters. Mm-hmm. And they, then they can sweep away your mana creatures, your hydras, your Nissa lands. Like It's always really dangerous to put your lands into play against a sweeper base deck they can cast out your planeswalkers they can cast out your artifacts they can bounce your artifacts with you know various teferis they can tuck stuff with teferi five and there's always like one person on blue white at the game store right it's sort of ironic that tron has a had anyway a pretty good matchup against blue white in modern yeah and here it's the the reverse yeah, I think you just can't go over the top in the same way. I mean, I'm sure there's ways that I could play it better. I think there's some sideboard cards that could potentially help a little bit more. And I think there's lines, you know, sometimes you're going to draw better than your opponent does. You're going to have a sequence that puts a card into play that they don't have an answer for and get a lot of value out of it. So, you know, I think I'm just running up against some some good blue-white players and uh, getting beat. I think that Karn also doesn't have a really good way to slow down aggro decks, like I mentioned, besides maybe getting like a fast statue. And that's not always realistic. And I think that the fastest decks can then overwhelm you before you stabilize. They can take out your mana creatures with their like red or black removal. They can attack into your planeswalkers, make you just feel on the back foot for a long time. And that's not great. So I think there's a few things that I'm going to be testing soon 
And, you know, if the listeners out there want to test them as well, uh, feel free. I think it'd be fun to communicate about this. The wishboard is the most fun thing to talk about, I think, in the, this gameplay. I looked at every Pioneer legal artifact on Scryfall like two times. <laughs> and the things that have popped up that seem kind of fun or good to me is maybe Elixir of Immortality. Crazy. It's, uh, it's just a single mana artifact. You can pay two and tap it to gain five life. It also it shuffles back into your your uh, your deck along with all of your graveyard, which is just kind of weird. But I mean, sticking a Karn, getting it, untapping, gaining five life—that's kind of like a probably a two for zero against like a mono red deck because you got it for free out of your sideboard. Um, I think Vivian can just take too long to get cards like Nylea's Disciple or Scavenging Ooze to try to get some life gain back. So I don't like either of those inclusions right now. Shadow Spear has been showing up a little bit. But I think that it has to have like a decent sized creature to equip onto to really get a lot of value and life gain out of it. So it seems a little bit sketchy to me. Uh, I think Life Crafter's Bestiary is probably just better than the Great Henge against certain matchups because you really have to have a creature in play to get your Great Henge down because it's just too expensive otherwise. And Bestiary is going to keep your, your top decks a lot better. It's going to let you draw a lot more threats. It's going to get you that card advantage you need for a much lower mana cost. And so I think that's definitely what I'm moving to over the Great Henge, which I think is maybe a little bit better than it needs to be. Like in terms of, it's not going to help your worst matchup. I think it's a total sleeve for me though. Uh, it takes their already proven strategy adds element that makes it better, harder for the opponent to account for. Uh, it's going to be my new main deck and pioneer for a while. Uh, I haven't really been able to play it against Inverter at all. Aspiring Spike says it has pretty good game against it, which is, I think, one of the reasons he liked it in the first place. Just because you can, you know, you can just do the graveyard annoyance with the Tormod's Crypt and then try to lock them down with the with the statue. And I think at the LGS, it's a great deck because you're gonna steamroll and negate the opponent's strategy on so many different levels. Because there's a lot more fair decks, you're going to go over the top. You're going to stop creature decks. You're going to stop mid-range decks. It has so many tools for you to use and lines for you to take that you can maximize your skill and power of the cards. So that was a lot. Uh, I like the deck. It's really good. Have some fun with it. <laughs> so uh, is it safe to say you're a sleever? Total sleever. I'm a believer and a sleever. Is that the end of the episode? Because we just did a dive down? Yeah. Enjoy <laughs> it. That's, that's a really fast deck dive on mono green Karn. Wow. I feel like you were kind of like the, the Micro Machines guy. <laughs> Was my pace a little bit too fast? You, you listen, to me, listen to me at 0.9 speed, everybody. Get that info in your head. Your passion, Shane, I find inspiring. Every once in a while, you find a deck that just clicks, and uh, this is one for me, so I'm going to run with it. That's awesome. But, but can you tell me again, what is it that you actually like about this deck? <laughs> <laughs> Pages up for... All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the mic from you now. Please, I'm, I'm tired. Sit down, have a glass of water. You've just been pacing around your room, talking into a microphone. The listeners can't see it, but behind Shane is a cork board with all these thumbtacks with green string going from thumbtack to thumbtack. There's a picture of Vivian Reed that goes to an elvish mystic that goes to a god pharaoh statue with a question mark next to it. It's it's intense. Yeah, in the business we call that a crazy wall. <laughs> Good news, David. I have a deck for you. You? I think it even has some cards that you've cast in the past. It absolutely does. And you have a new twist on just a word, the word shadow. 
That's true. That's true. So if you're like me, which you may or may not be, and I'm talking to the listeners here, David. Yeah. I pay a lot of attention to the control communities in modern, especially. And one of the latest pieces of tech that a lot of notable streamers, including Aspiring Spike and our friend, the pen sword, have been testing in their various control builds is a classic card that has seen a new light of day, and that is Shadow of Doubt. If you've never heard of Shadow of Doubt, it is a two CMC instant hybrid mana, blue-black, blue-black. Though in the deck I played, you're only ever casting it for blue-blue. And it reads, players can't search libraries this turn, draw a card. Yeah, and it is from the original Ravnica. City of Guilds. Yep. Which means it is not Pioneer legal. No, so don't get any ideas. So the reason people have been talking about this card lately and it's been popping up in some MTGO deck lists has a lot to do with Primeval Titan. Arguably the strongest ability on Primeval Titan is that it fetches lands. Obviously a 6-6 Trampler, quite good, quite a potent threat. But if you've never played with or against Titan, the things that it can do range from finding other Titans, thanks to cards like Teleria West, a land that you transmute to find Summoner's Pact, which you then use to get your Titan. In other Titan builds, such as Titan Field, use your Titan to fuel Field of the Dead and create this inevitability engine to produce an insurmountable number of zombies and eventually just run over the board because who can deal with 22 twos? I can't. Not me. So people are playing Shadow of Doubt to try to deal with this Titan Menace, but it is worth noting that it has applications elsewhere. In fact, when I was putting together notes for this episode, I looked at the top 12 decks in the modern metagame, according to MTG Goldfish, and found that 11 of these top 12 decks in Goldfish use some kind of fetching. The only one that doesn't is Mono Red Prowess? That is correct. Mm. Even Burn runs Fetchlands. And the bare minimum in some of these decks I found is that they at least run Fetchlands. Yeah. This is 100% Shane's most hated type of card, Stan. You (laughs) know it, I know it, the listeners know it, and here he comes with the question. Yes, Dan, the question here is for me, when is this worth it? Like, there's, there's a cost of putting this in your deck, there's a potential benefit, right? Like, it's a tech card versus something that's just core to a strategy of a deck so like convince me man i'm i'm Mulder here i want to believe totally i got an alien on the wall next to vivian and nissa so i mean i think it's mostly worth it when you can't fit any more nimble obstructionists into your deck is that right stan david (laughs) why do you do this to me shane you're absolutely right this is a tech card this is a meta card and really what i want to do in this discussion is try to address the question you're asking When is it worth it? Because ultimately, I don't think this is a staple. I think this is a card that either you're putting in your sideboards or your main decks because conditions are ripe where you can potentially extract value. And one of the things that we're going to talk about to start is where some of the value from this card comes from. Because when things go correctly for you, this card can be a two-for-one or Potentially, it shuts off your opponent from fetching really important payoffs that would just win them the game outright. So let's start with the ceiling. And that is, more often than not, when Shadow of the Doubt does its job, it's actually a Stone Rain. Or maybe Better Wasteland. 
a one-sided field of ruin? I don't know. It's a pretty unique effect. Because what will happen sometimes, especially if you're on the play, I have found opponents will often wait to fetch their turn one fetch land until after you have played your second land and passed the turn. So imagine you're playing some kind of blue-blazed blue control deck. Draw, go. You play your turn one land, pass the turn. Play a turn two land, pass the turn. It's not uncommon for people to wait until after you've passed the turn to fetch before their second turn. And what you can do with Shadow of Doubt, after opponent pays one life, taps and sacrifices a fetch land, in response to that fetch trigger, you cast Shadow of Doubt, they have now lost the land, paid a life, and you have replaced the card in your hand. Got him. Nailed it. But as Shane mentioned, there is a floor and a cost of putting this card in your deck too. And in my opinion, the floor for this card is that it is almost literally the worst two-mana cantrip in modern at instant speed. Are there good two-mana cantrips? I mean, you could potentially say that the new... What, what is that? Omen of the Sea. Omen of the Sea, thank you. Yeah, Omen of the Sea is somewhat playable. I mean, Think Twice is a two-mana cantrip with flashback. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Telling Time, you can use that in some miracle builds. So you have cards with more utility than just blue, blue, draw a card. And in most typical use cases, I found that it is actually tagging fetch lands because you're so much more likely to deal with a deck that runs fetch lands than you are to deal with a deck that runs Primeval Titan, even though Primeval Titan was the inspiration for this piece of technology in the blue decks that I was paying attention to. But some other occasional use cases where it did come in handy, Stoneforge Mystic, Cast that in response to the Stoneforge Mystic entered the battlefield trigger. They can't find a sword. They can't find a batter skull. And they just have a 1-2 on the board. Were of Invention, still a staple in these Urza decks, often used to find really important artifact-based payoffs or prison pieces, or more likely than not, a combo for the Thopter sword combination. Cast in response to War of Invention, they can't tutor, and they just tapped all their artifacts, probably all their mana, and now the coast is clear for you. Expedition map, a staple in both Eldrazi Tron and Mono Green Tron. Yeah, don't stop my map. I gotta go places. It's brutal. I bet that's very, very rough for those players. You know, it's not uncommon for some Tron players to keep one or two Tron lands and then count on Sylvan Scrying or Expedition map to be that third land. Yes, yeah, it's entirely common. It's like it's like ninety eight percent of the games, I'd say. Well, what if I told you you can counter that spell and replace it in your hand? Like a cryptic command, but only for two mana. I would tell you I want it for one mana and for it to be green. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help you there, David. I don't think that card exists. A couple other really quick corner cases. Finale of Devastation and Ranger Captain of Aos in the Heliod combo decks, as well as Gifson given in Storm. I gotta ask, though, Stan, did you find yourself trying to get people with Shadow of Doubt when they're playing these types of decks and these types of strategies? Like, if, if you're playing a Stoneforge Mystic deck, were you just sort of getting it for value, or is that part of, like, your innate game plan? Like, I'm going to get this Stoneforge activation. If the card is in my hand, then I'm not holding it until I know the deck my opponent is using is going to try to fetch for something. Mm-hmm. So primarily, you're, like, you're trying to get that fetch, but then, like, secondarily, you might, if you have a second one, you're going you're gonna to wait and just hold up mana. Well, it kind of depends on the deck. So in something like Jund, tagging a fetch is obviously the only target you'll hit. But in something like 
Stoneblade or Urza, you know, hitting one of their namesake cards, whether it's War of Invention or Stoneforge Mystic or Expedition Map, you're going to get so much more value than potentially hitting a Fetchland. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out here too, just because we haven't brought it up in a minute, and Shane, this is not your jam as far as decks go. You're kidding. <laughs> right. Um, it's worth pointing out that the downside of running a card like this in blue-red control is quite a bit lower, I think, than something like blue-white control because this deck plays basically basically at instant speed. And so you're holding up mana for all your optionality anyway, right? Whether you have Archmage's Charm, you got a Cryptic Command, and you've got this at two, so... Remand. I mean, really, you're holding this or Remand or something else. Yeah, Remand. So you can just sit back and wait, right? And then just kind of see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say it right out the gate. I actually don't think it's playable in the current build of Blue-White Control. I really liked it in Blue-Red, but in Blue-White, you have Basic Planes and Field of Ruin, sometimes as many as six or seven copies of these non-blue sources in your deck, that the liability of a blue-blue card is too high. And the rate of it failing to be live on turn two was a little too high for my personal comfort levels. I think it's possible to maybe tune a blue-white deck to be able to cast this more reliably, but then you're sacrificing the power of Field of Ruin. So consider that. Also, on Monday... The day I recorded this, Aspiring Spike trophied with blue-black control. Basically saying that Shadow of Doubt is great, Lightning Bolt isn't very good right now, so I want to try this in one of my blue-black, you know. Essentially his his classic Grixis build, dropping red because he doesn't think that Lightning Bolt is particularly well-positioned right now. And unfortunately, I didn't see that list soon enough for me to test but it's something I think you may want to keep an eye on if Aspiring Spike is a streamer and player that you enjoy. So we talked a little bit about what Shadow of Doubt does and what are some of its practical implications. And I, I want to say it actually did remind me of a couple other spells that I cast periodically. And one of those is Spell Snare. Because Shadow of Doubt, similar to Spell Snare, I think its power level is somewhat contingent on whether you're on the play or the draw. So Shadow of Doubt feels so good if it's in your opening hand on the play as opposed to spell snare which feels quite good if it's in your opening hand on the draw likewise both of these cards practically dead in some matchups though the floor on spell snare is lower arguably than the floor on shadow of doubt because worst case scenario you can always draw a card off a shadow yeah thinking about the play draw dependency stand Spells like Spell Snare, I think, can maybe lose a little bit of an edge Like once your opponent knows that it exists. like, Do you think that opponents played a little bit differently once they saw you have the spell like game one? What a great question, Shane, because they absolutely did. And one of the things that I noticed my opponent started doing after I got them was waiting to crack a fetch land until they had two fetch lands on the board. Because what will occasionally happen is they'll know that they can't save that first fetch land if I'm presenting Shadow of Doubt. But they could potentially get one land out of that bargain. So you hold up two fetches, crack one, I Shadow of Doubt, I two for one you, then you crack your other one in response to Shadow of Doubt. So at least you're not totally down on resources. The other one that it reminded me a little bit in its impact on the game and the way it felt in my hand and on the board was actually Field of Ruin for reasons such as it replaces itself. It can actually strain opponent's mana base 
And likewise, its fail state is technically playable, right? Whether or not you're cashing in Field of Ruin, at the end of the day, you can tap it for mana. So we touched on this a little bit with Shane's question, but I want to talk somewhat about which decks, Shadow of Doubt, I consider is playable in. And really, I looked at instant speed slash control decks. So blue-red flash. And like I said, I don't think it's great in blue-white because of the planes and the, and the field of ruins. But in playing it in blue-red, I actually really hated having it in the same hand as Thing in the Ice. Hmm. And one of the reasons was because of the relationship between Shadow of the Doubt and Thing in the Ice in various matchups. So sometimes you want to have Shadow of Doubt in your opening hands because it's got a ton of value early. So ideally, you're holding up two mana after you pass the turn on turn two, maybe turn three. And when your opponent presents an opportunity for you to two for one them, that's when you cash it in. But in order for you to do that, you have to keep your thing in the ice in your hand and you can't really present an early threat. And there are some matchups where you actually want to cast an early thing in the ice. You know, namely Primeval Titan decks. I personally think that you have to cast that turn two thing because you need to race the giant 6-6. And if you can't present that early threat, then you're potentially really far behind because that deck isn't doing a ton of fetching until it casts this Primeval Titan. So what did I end up doing is I looked through my ultimate guard box of cards that are all double-sleeved in my preferred sleeves. Get at us. And I found a new alternative threat instead of Thing in the Ice that I thought actually pairs much better with Shadow of Doubt, and that was our old friend, Brineborn Cutthroat. Oh, don't say this. Don't say these words in front of me. Oh. <laughs> I'm saying it, Dave. Brineborn Cutthroat might be good here. Okay. So if you don't remember, Brineborn is a one in a blue 2-1 merfolk with flash. And it also has a line of text where if you cast a spell on your opponent's turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on Brineborn. And one of the reasons why I consider bringing in Brineborn is because I thought about the relationship between that creature and a card like Remand, where it allows you to both hold up your two-mana early game interaction, and if you don't get to cash it in, then you can present your threat alternatively. Likewise, if Brineborn is on the board and you get an opportunity to play your Shadow of Doubt later, you can potentially get an extra point of damage via an extra point of power on this creature. The other shell where I think this might have a home is various blue-red combo decks such as Through the Breach or even Kiki Jiki. Because those are decks where you're holding up a ton of early game interaction so that you can eventually clear the way for your combo finish. And what I like there is having your turn to remand, which both buys you a turn as well as digs you through your deck. But likewise, this will potentially buy you a turn while getting you up a card and slowing your opponent down a turn by presenting this sometimes significant tempo loss because they lost a land in this exchange. Truth be told, I didn't get a chance to test this in Breach or Kiki-Jiki, but I think that's another shell where this might be viable as an alternative to drop to both Remand or Omen of the Sea. I played a lot of matches with this card, trying it in both Thing in the Ice and Brineborn alternatives. I think I played three leagues and seriously countless games in the practice rooms. Man, you be grinding, Stan. Oh, I was grinding. And and I got to say, part of that has to do with the fact that I'm anticipating playing blue-red control at SCG Regionals. I'm shaking my head. Killing two birds with one stone, testing for the episode, and testing for a tournament. He didn't say he was going to play this card, to be clear. Yeah, but let's be honest. Why wouldn't I? Are you going to reveal it at the end of this? 
I'm revealing it now. <laughs> in playing all these matches, I actually came up with a, a handful of heuristics that people who are testing Shadow of Doubt should consider, as well as people who may be playing against a Shadow of Doubt deck can keep in mind. For starters, it's an easy out when you're sideboarding against decks without fetching. I think that should go without saying. But against a deck like Titan, it reminded me a lot of Remand, because all it really does is slow them down a turn. And like I said, I think the strongest thing Titan does is its ability to fetch more lands. Shadow of Doubt doesn't prevent the 6-6 body from ever hitting the ground, and that's still something you have to worry about. Magmatic Sinkhole, by itself, is not going to kill a Primeval Titan, and all you're doing when you're casting Shadow of Doubt against Primeval Titan is hopefully finding an extra card or two that then help you close out the game through other means. Be it Bolt Snap Bolt, be it with a Flying 3-1, maybe be it with a larger Brineborn Cutthroat. Heck, maybe you're even flipping a thing in the ice. Against greedy three-color decks, so things like Jund, Grixis Shadow, or, you know, four-color Shadow alternatives, I think it's better on the play than on the draw. And likewise, it pairs really nicely with Blood Moon, which is a card that I think most Blood Moon players will tell you is better on the play than on the draw. One of the reasons why I think it's cool with Blood Moon is if you're really lucky and you can tag that turn two land, get them down a land, by the time you're casting a turn three or turn four Blood Moon, they're so behind on resources that then you get to sit back for a couple turns while you reload, find more cards for you to interact with them, and ideally, hopefully, find a threat to the close out the game. Against Tron, I really like this against Mono Green Tron more than against Eldrazi Tron, because the only fetch card in Eldrazi Tron currently is Expedition Map, whereas Mono Green also has Sylvan Scrying. And because these two scrying fetching cards are so important to the Mono Green strategy, if you shut down their ability to find their land payoff, you are potentially buying yourself two or more turns before they find their big mana payoff. Oh yeah, that can be just a game breaker because your keep is just relying on that spell resolving. And if it doesn't, poo. Poo poo indeed. Yeah, I also want to point out really quickly the difference between search and not search while we're talking, especially since we're talking about Etron for a second. That um, you know, Etron is running once upon a time sometimes now, and that effects like that do not count as searches. Mm-hmm. So don't think that they're live targets for Shadow of Doubt. It's really only cards that say search your library for X. Yeah, another really good example of this is in the deck Ad Nauseum, which runs Spoils of the Vault kind of feels like a search card but it's not it is a reveal card spoils says reveal cards from your library until you reveal a card of your choosing yeah so there are uh, a handful of decks where i actually think whether you're on the play or the draw you always have to keep shadow in and because these are i think format staples right now it's kind of what tips the scale into making this card arguably playable it's always in against Stoneblade. it's always in against storm Devoted Company, and Wurza. All of these decks run cards that fetch for such important payoffs that, similar to Tron or Titan, by locking them out of their ability to search for those payoffs, you might not only buy yourself a turn, but you might sort of build enough inevitability that they can never recover as you recharge on resources and take control of the game outright. So Shane, I think you asked me, is this worth a card? Yes. And I got to tell you, my answer no. is sometimes. <laughs> Great answer. Yeah. So, I mean, the good, it can be a two for one. And in blue-red strategies, those are actually quite rare. For Archmage's Charm to be a two for one, you have to use it to draw cards. Cryptic Command can be a two for one. 
but it costs four mana. Jace the Mind Sculptor can be a two for one, sometimes, but it has to survive and Jace dies to a lightning bolt very often. So having this new tool that potentially gets you two for one in a lot of relevant matchups, I think gives it really serious consideration. There does come some bad with this card, which is that A, you don't always have it. It's really good on turn two. Sometimes it's not in your opening hand. Sometimes you don't draw it early enough. And likewise, it can kind of sort of rot in your hand. I mentioned that you can always cash in for another card, but I also mentioned that it's basically the worst two-mana cantrip in modern. So if you're doing that, you don't feel great. One of the only times where I felt like that two-mana cantrip was actually decent was if I was putting something on top of my deck with Mystic Sanctuary. But again, that's a corner case. It seems a lot like a sensor to me. You know what I mean? Where it's like it's a, it's a two-mana force spike type effect that on turn two is, is could be awesome, but is not always. Mm-hmm. And so you can just cycle it for a single mana um, or like a reverse cast out where late in the game you want to see that cast out, but early in the game you can cycle it out of your hand for a single mana. I, and I see those are why cards like that can see some play in Pioneer and Modern because they can cycle for so cheaply but unfortunately the like the cycle on the the shadow of doubt is two mana and so that's definitely a a drawback for sure right yeah i do you agree though that the ceiling is higher because none of those cards will two for one your opponent for sure yeah nailed it (laughs) also cycling doesn't trigger cards like brineborn cutthroat or thing in the ice which i think at least in the decks that i'm talking about is relevant yeah so when would you play this dan like when when do you want this in a deck do you think right now i want it on the play I want it against a deck with Fetchlands. In fact, I'm more excited with this in my hand when I'm playing against Jund or Shadow or even something like Blue-White Control because those are the decks that are fetching somewhat aggressively. And because that matchup is so much more common than Titan matchups, you know, whatever you believe the position of Titan in the meta is right now, at least there you always know you're going to have an easy two-for-one as opposed to something like Titan where it isn't always a two-for-one, it just kind of negates their payoff. Yeah, I mean, it negates their payoff for the cost of zero cards, which is nice. Sure, right? that's for sure. And, and you know, I, I, I think I've been dancing around this, but I think the way I ended up feeling best about Shadow of Doubt was when I treated it like a build-around, was when I treated it as a card that I can play on turn two, but also have other options to play in the same turn. More specifically, Brineboard Cutthroat, sometimes that's opt, Sometimes that's Bolt, what have you. Likewise, I gotta admit, I wouldn't keep this card in my deck unless there was a critical mass of applications for it, which I think we are arguably in that environment right now. You know, let's say on Monday, by some unexpected miracle, Primeval Titan gets banned, which I neither advocate nor think will happen, but let's just say it does. I don't think I'm playing Shadow of Doubt without Primeval Titan in the format. One of the things I'm curious about, though, is how much of a silver bullet against Titan do you think that it really is? So although you can run it against Titan, it's really just a hiccup in their plan. It's almost like a remand in that it buys you an extra turn, since Titan will then start fetching lands once it gets to attack. And though Titan being in the meta, coupled with Expedition Map and Stoneforge Mystic and Gifts Ungiven and some other non-land cards that make this more relevant and more playable... I don't think you can put this in your deck just because you think it's going to help you beat Titan. It's a hiccup. And, you know, as Blood Moon players would tell you, you can't just count on disruption to win the game. You have to you have to have disruption plus a clock. 
So is it good against Titan? Sure. Is it the end-all, be-all solution against Titan? No. And sometimes I think it had more play against something like Sakura Tribe Elder. You sack it, fetch a land. I would cash in the Shadow of Doubt against that than against a resolved Titan, since that's what they're using to ramp into their Titan, right? You're trying to prevent early game rather than these late game, super powerful payoffs. Some of the other questions that I've been asking myself when it comes to whether or not this card is worth a slot in my deck is whether or not it's actually more likely to tag an opposing card than something like Mana Leak. It's similar in that they're both quite good in the early game, but at the same time, I think Mana Leak has both a higher ceiling and a lower floor. It's harder to cash in a Mana Leak when you don't have anything to spend it on, but at the same time, it is actually answering another card that is a non-land. Mana Leak will deal with permanence in a way that Shadow of Doubt does not. At the same time, you kind of have to ask yourself, what is it replacing in your blue-red strategies? My favorite question about all cute cards, what are you replacing? So in these strategies, it's taking the slot of cards such as, but not necessarily, Blood Moon. Main deck Blood Moon may or may not be in fashion. Cryptic Command, very powerful, easy two-for-one, but quite expensive. Planeswalkers, that could be Jace the Mind Sculptor, Ral. Is it Viceroy? <laughs> Even the Royal Scions. Or, this tends to be less popular these days, but it is historically playable, Electrolyze. Another possible two, if not three for one, which can destroy creatures while also replacing itself. I think, at the end of the day, it's a meta card. And really, that's my verdict. I don't think it's the new control staple, but it's another piece in this suite of technology you can use in certain meta conditions. If humans is really popular, or spirits for that matter, or elves, or infect, or other creature strategies, I would so much rather play Electrolyze. If it's just big, greedy lands, ramp strategies like Tron or Jund, maybe there aren't as many strategies that are fetching for combo payoffs. At that point, I'll just play Blood Moon, since all I really want to do is hit out lands and I don't have to worry about all these other corner case applications. Ultimately, it's a meta call. And I think right now the meta is good. And I don't think you exclusively have to take it from me. I mean, I'm borrowing opinions and, and, and learned about this card because my buddy Jacob the Pensor started playing it. And just today, Aspiring Spike started playing it in blue-black. And we're starting to see you know, some number of these MTGO grinders that have some success and pedigree saying that this card is decent. And I can understand the conditions that they're speaking to. But... Fortunately, it's a cheap card. I bought them at like three bucks a pop because I know I'm going to cast them. But I also know that in a few months, they're probably going to be sitting in my deck box again. So if I were to give it an SBH rating, I think it's a Believe Plus. Yes, you can pull it out in certain conditions, depending on who's playing what at your local game store. But I wouldn't expect this to be the end-all be-all new technology or staple in these blue control decks. Stan, I think you talked more about a single card than I did about an entire deck. And there I am impressed with you, my friend. <laughs> That's because you guys interjected more than I did. I love to interject. Hmm. <laughs> I think we should check the tapes. Thank you, Shane, for saying that. I got to ask, did I make any convincing points? I can tell you one thing about this card, and that is I own three copies of Shadow Doubt already because this is a card that comes up every couple of years. 
as being something that is possibly usable in modern. And so I think it's a good card to have around. I don't think it's ever gotten to a point where it's super useful, but this might be the moment where it is the most useful because it has it allows you to play main deck hate against a bunch of things that you can't run otherwise. You can't run Ashiok uh, main deck. You know what I mean? You really can't. And so this gives you a little bit of, of a way to keep people from searching for really important things without, um, without having too much main deck downside. And I think that's probably the best use of this card. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a metagame where people are searching greedily, instead of doing greedy mana bases, maybe this is a good replacement for Blood Moon in some number in the types of decks that you like to play. I like that, Dave. Um, Dave, what, what new deck new card new version of old cards did you check out this week well i think we're going to close it out on a little bit of a banger here because i played the new kci this week oh boy your style of deck man (laughs) it's definitely not my style of deck and i know that bringing up that name is kind of like bringing some bad energy into the podcast but i gotta tell you what bad boy dave's here bad boy dave is here and he's got not your daddy's kci that's what he's got to show you show you this week. It's a spiked root beer, 9% KCIs. Exactly. So w- what deck am I talking about here? Well, it's time for us to spend a little bit of time with everybody's favorite new card that's broken in every format and likely will be banned in one format at least in the upcoming banned and restricted announcement, and that is Underworld Breach. But this time, instead of talking Pioneer, we're going to talk Modern. In case you forgot, here's what Underworld Breach is. Underworld Breach is an enchantment that costs a single generic mana and a single red mana. And it says each non-land card in your graveyard has escape. The escape cost is equal to the card's mana cost plus exile three other cards from your graveyard. You, have you guys played with this card yet in anything? Either of you two? I've only played against it and it's stupid. Yeah. Same. Can I tell you that my, you know, my dad used to play magic and he's in town and we were having dinner last night. And I was like, Hey, what do you think about this card? And he goes, why did they reprint Yawgmoth's will? My dad is a 75-year-old man. What's your dad's name, Dave? It's also Dave. Hey, I knew that. And he has bad memories of Yawgmoth's will from 20 years ago still. So don't fool around with this. So at any rate, you might remember that when we were talking about the Theros Beyond Death spoilers, and I was talking about Nerval Breach, we talked about a combo involving this card and Grinding Station. Where basically, if you resolve Grinding Station, have Breach and a zero-cost artifact like Mox Opal, Mox Amber, or Mishra's Bauble in play, you can create a loop that mills out your whole deck and lets you cast a bunch of cards out of your graveyard over and over again, create a bunch of mana, you get an empty deck and a new lease on life. And, you know, with cards like Thassa's Oracle... This kind of comes into, uh, has a win condition included with it as well as far as the uh, self-mill plan goes. I think that when Mox Opal was banned, people kind of thought that there was a good chance that this deck was just not going to happen, right? Because it got rid of the fast mana capabilities. It got rid of a number of the mana rocks that you have, which is one of the main ways to make sure that you have enough mana to actually cast a kill card out of of your graveyard and keep casting cards out of your uh, graveyard. But this week, I think we what what happened this week with this deck and this car, these cards is that it's turned out that an old magic rule of thumb has been proven to be true again, and that is that broken cards will always find a way to be broken, and that's breach. Oh yeah, that card's busted. So did you all see this on on Twitter? 
like where this deck started or seemed to have start at least this version of it. Oh yeah. When I first saw that tweet, which I'm sure you will mention my alarm bells went off. Yes. Because it was from a very good pro who is a little bit kind of like taking a, a tiny step away from magic right now. From what I understand, uh, Pascal Maynard tweeted and I quote, this is one of the best modern decks I've ever played, band decks included. It kills on turn three with 2.2 cards through creature removal. You have infinity redundancy while not playing bad cards. You can play a long game. Galve Blast and Dance gives an alt kill if main pieces run out. Dance. Yes. We'll talk about it in a minute. Let us dance. But dance, dance, dance. For people who might not recognize the name Pascal Maynard, they're a Canadian player who actually had a little bit of infamy after uh, Modern Masters Pro Tour when they were drafting and they drafted a foil Tarma Goyf instead of a, a good card. Goyfgate. It was like an adequate card. No, it was Burst Lightning, which is an extremely good card in, in draft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, the, uh, that was actually a Grand Prix that Shane and I were at. It's all connected. Yeah, I was next to Pascal. I passed him the foil goyf. Yeah, Shane was good. He, he took, something, took something more applicable to draft. So anyway, when I clicked on the picture in Maynard's post, you know, I was thinking maybe I'll see something with Titan. Maybe I'll see something with Urza. But no, it was the shell of the deck that we had talked about a couple uh, six weeks or so ago with breach and grinding station and not too much else new. <laughs> it certainly made me stop and go you again, <laughs> but the, uh, the reaction on Twitter was huge likes shares happening everywhere. People talking about it, the card grinding station immediately seemed to spike from $3 to over $20 a copy. And it launched a whole substring of tweets about people complaining about their, the uh, orders that they had placed before the spike getting canceled, which that's always it's rude. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that that happened to some people, which which sucks. So let's talk really quickly about what's in the deck. So it is a Jeskai grinding station breach combo deck. And it's kind of made up of a few different categories of cards but it's a lot of different stuff. Okay. This is like a messy looking deck when you look at it. And the list that I played, I started playing towards the middle of last week. It evolved off of from then. For example, the deck that I was playing had Vela Summer in the sideboard, which is a sweet card. And it's like, why not? This deck is full of sweet broken cards. Let's run it. By the end of the week, Vela Summer and the Green Splash seem to have worked its way out of most people's people's spots. But what essentially is going on is it's a lot of different synergistic card groups that all align trying to win around a, that new staple from Theros Beyond Death's Thassa's Oracle. Not going to read the card. You know what Thassa's Oracle does if you listen to this podcast. So it's basically another Thassa's Oracle deck when it comes down to it with a couple of different ways to make things happen. So let's talk about what's in it. Mm-hmm. Artifacts, right? It's got all the op- broken artifact stuff that everybody's annoyed with in modern right now. It's got Mishra's Bobble. It's got Arkham's Astrolabe to help fix mana and also to help you draw cards. It's got a couple of Mox Amber for mana generation and as part of a, the kill combo as well. Remember when that card was just a joke? It was never a joke to me. I knew someday it would be good. You did know. I'm just, I'm just held on to him. Buy Mox Tantalites now. <laughs> Only a matter of time. <laughs> That's still one I can't figure out. But this one, this one... I always knew it was going to be good enough. Um, it's also got engineered explosives to help with removal and to have another zero CMC artifact. 
And, and this is a full playset of engineer explosives. Oh yeah, it's a full staple of astrolabe, bauble, and engineered explosives. Engineered explosives for zero is always one of like these staple pieces of these broken artifact decks, right? And it's just so frustrating that like it can it can be an easy enabler or like buy you time and like sweep a board and remove a bunch of permanence. It's very frustrating. Yep. But what's the best way to use all of these artifacts? What are we cheating with it? Well, the first thing that we're doing is we're cheating Emery Lurker of the Lock into play because that card is just good. And even when you're not untapping it a bunch of times through some kind of Jeskai Ascendancy combo, you still can do all kinds of stuff to abuse this card. So it's one of the linchpins of the deck. It helps you fill the graveyard to play artifacts from the graveyard for value. And it also helps you do things like get a turn two kill or get a grinding station back out of the graveyard or get a Mishra's Bauble back from the graveyard for value or get EE back over and over again. So you can just use the Lurker uh, Emery to just do so many, so many different things. So that's kind of like the artifact package in here. Now, notice I didn't mention Grinding Station. Grinding Station is one of the combo pieces, but it's not the, um, and it's definitely a sack outlet, which is important for using a lot of these different artifacts, but it's not the, um, it's not a value piece in a lot of ways. At least I, I don't think it is. The second kind of plan that this deck has, in addition to kind of all the annoying artifact stuff that everybody's been complaining about in 2019, is it has a pretty good counter control suite, essentially, which is enabled by the stuff that we got used to see, a couple of things that we got used to seeing in the Urza decks that most recently came from Lotus Box, which is Cryptic Command and Metallic Rebuke and Mystic Sanctuary. And all of that lets you play a pretty good long game if you have to go that far. Metallic Rebuke is excellent early in the game in the same way, and it can be cheated out the same way that you can cheat out Emery, essentially, because you have so many cheap artifacts. It's often available as a one mana, mana leak, which is incredible when you think about it. And still kind of kills me that um, it took that this long for this card to break through. It just seems like a good card that people are going to be playing with for a long time as long as they have access to these cheap artifacts. I, in my mind, I think Arkham's Astrolabe might have been the thing that really pushed that over the, the top to being viable. Um, and then finally, it has Teferi 3 to help turn, down, turn off interaction from your opponents. Why not? And do other stuff with the bounce ability. You don't really need the plus ability very much in this deck, but you definitely can do some tricky stuff with, um, you know, for example, I got a Mox Amber to make, t I ramped from three to five mana, essentially. I played, I played Teferi, dropped Mox Amber, tapped it for mana, minus Teferi to pick my Mox Amber back up and play it again, drew a card, had two extra mana. <laughs> That's the good stuff. Stan is shaking, is nodding his head right now. That's how I got Teferi and Grinding Station out on turn three one time. So finally, you know, alongside the Underworld Breach Grinding Station Fill Your Graveyard plan, it also has some good alternate win cons in, in uh, Galvagon Blast and Dance of the Mance, mm. which are just reasonable cards on their own because you're filling the graveyard, so you're good to try to use uh, Dance of the Mance to get cards back from the graveyard if you need them which you quite often do and the thing about dance of the mance is that it gets back breach and grinding station for four total mana so if you have both in the graveyard and you have an opportunity you can cast dance of the mance for two comes right back all right public apology shane this was a card you called out when it was spoiled and i was like never gonna happen i don't know if it's happening it's just in there yeah i mean it's it found it found an application so i'll tip my hat to you there I'll tell you, I never got to use this to actually kill anybody. 
but um, it definitely was a useful card here and there. And Galvanic Blast is just removal, and occasionally you cast Galvanic Blast on somebody five times instead of trying to deck yourself with Thassa's Oracle because they tag your Oracle or something like that. Uh, the sideboard also has some incredible sideboard options and kind of just has like the best of the best. You know, I said that people were playing Veil of Summer and took it out, but I think that's a really good card. It's got Blood Moon, it's got Hope of Giraper, it's got Aether Gust and Mystical Disputes and just kind of Tormod's Crypts. Just all the good sideboard cards are here in this deck for you to play. So, did you guys play against this deck? What do you think about it? I did play against this deck. Uh, I beat it actually, because my opponent never found their Teferis, which is always the control killer, and I was just able to spell snare some Underworld Breaches and get down some or- Thassa's Oracles, and as long as you like deal with Engineered Explosives, they can be pretty short on removal. Um, I was comboed out once, and it's kind of impressive to watch the Grinding Station combo just at work, um, as they essentially grind their whole deck out in one turn. Oh, yeah. And it's basically uh, the word, I think, that trendy word that everybody's using now is, what is it, determinative? Mm-hmm. What is it? Is deterministic. It deterministic, yes, deterministic. We need more more syllables, please. Because it, it basically is, like, once you get it up and going, if for some reason your opponent can't interact with you, uh, let's say because you have to ferry out, the game is just over because you never miss. Like, there's nothing going on other than casting Mishra's Bauble over and over again or alternating Mox Ambers as you sacrifice them. Like, it's just it's just over. I even did it before where my opponent had um, removed my graveyard, so I only had two extra cards in my graveyard. And so I had to go through the whole kill just holding on to the two extra cards in my graveyard while I just exact seize, milled out three over and over again got it down to just be thassa's oracle and uh metallic rebuke were active in my graveyard just in case i didn't have them locked out and then i played thassa's oracle once the deck was empty there's also i want to point out an important interaction between our friend teferi and our new favorite card dance of the mance which is teferi makes dance into an instant speed card i think people often forget of what that tick up ability on teferi can sometimes do for certain strategies. And this is one where it actually comes in handy since dance is a sorcery usually. Yeah. I never had a chance to do it, but you're right that it's the, um, you know, that's the, that's one upside to that particular interaction. That's still, that's still there. Um, I think that here's the thing though. And I'm going to tell you guys a little secret. I love secrets. I'm too dumb to play this deck. Are you? That's how I would feel, man. This is hard. It is, it is a difficult deck to play. And I know I say that a lot when I've gone in a league and not done well or whatever, but I think this deck is super difficult as far as combo decks go. And I feel like this is one of those, it's like many combo decks, when you have it, it is super sweet. Now, I hate clicking. And I had a number of people just scoop when I played a grinding station. They were just like, like I would just play grinding station out on turn three and they'd be like, bye. Uh, I think that's too soon. <laughs> it's a little too soon, I think as well. But the problem with this kind of deck is that you have to work out what you're supposed to do when you don't have it and how to identify a hand that has a good plan for getting it. Yeah, Dave, I think this is like a big area that separates normal players and really good players because when you navigate a game situation that doesn't have like your easy combo kill or you don't have the pieces that are coming together that you want. You have to make the game go longer. You have to get yourself in a position to get to that game winning situation. I've run into that a lot with things like devoted Druid combo, the new Heliod combo decks where it's like, well, this combo is not coming together. 
how am I going to make the game go long enough and get to a winning position? And sometimes I just don't do it because I can't figure it out. Yeah, I'll say that this particular deck, especially for someone who's familiar with playing blue cards, has a lot of tools to do other things. And it has a lot of combo pieces that can kind of alternate as things that help you get to a longer game. So I feel like, you know, I've been playing a lot of infinite combo decks because I played the Devoted Heliod decks the last time that we kind of talked about a deck in modern. That deck, I felt like, has a little bit less ability to sort of slide sideways into a delay the game kind of plan than this one does because there are lots of things you can be doing you can maneuver engineer explosives to all kinds of different numbers to just sweep your opponent's board over and over again you can set up for a long game by doing cryptic looping with mystic sanctuary and just hold the fort as long as you can until you get through where you're trying to go you can play value bobbles every turn off of emery so you're just drawing two cards a turn so there's lots of options you know there's even options that i mentioned to win via the other kind of win cons like trying to cast a gigantic dance of the manse or something like that and just attack into your opponent for you know let's say like 30 ish life or something like that but it's really difficult all the pieces are really are really high powered cards they're very like tiny like detail oriented cards like how to use cryptic command right how to bobble right when do i sacrifice my my arkham's astrolabe so i can replay it like all kinds of things like that and so aside of all of this stuff of how you maneuver and how you're trying to occasionally get to your alternate win cons. I think it's worth just mentioning again that the main win combination of getting Underworld Breach and Grinding Station out at the same time is the thing you're trying to do as much as you can. And that is a really resilient combo that is uh, made redundant and harder to fight against by lots of elements in the deck. So the way that the combo actually works is that Grinding Station is a two-casting-cost artifact that says tap, sacrifice an artifact, target player puts the top three cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. Whenever an artifact comes into play, you may untap Grinding Station. And so what happens is the amount of cards that Grinding Station puts in the graveyard are exactly the number of cards that you need in order to activate Escape on Underworld Breach. And so what, what you do is, as you get more and more cards into your graveyard, you get a chance to recast an artifact over and over again because it comes into play off of Underworld Breach. You can cast it, get rid of the three cards that you just milled in, and then it untaps Grinding Station, so you just get to do it over and over and over again. Now, you need some extra cards in your graveyard when you're doing this to make sure that you can maneuver, that you can set aside a card like Thassa's Oracle that you need to be able to play at the end of the game to actually win. So you can't start doing this if you don't have any cards in your graveyard, but you can pretty quickly get a whole bunch of cards in your graveyard via different ways with this deck, including just things like fetch lands and, and stuff like that. Emery, cracking Mishra's bobble. Yeah, exactly. Emery just kind of gets you, gets you a, big, a big leap forward as well. But I think that this whole deck is really, really good. I just think that if you are used to playing KCI and Urza, this is the, this is the new deck for you, right? Mm -hmm. Get it, play it, pay your money for your grinding stations, go for it. There's lots of the same cards here. There's lots of the same skills. You know, I played it for like eight or 10 matches, basically. I played a league and a bunch of practice matches. I felt like I was starting to get the hang of it, but like I got beat a lot and I misclicked a lot. And I... You know, I had a game where I decked myself but had lost Thassa's Oracle to a Nile Spellbomb. So what I was trying to do was get enough cards to... Um, to dance. Not dance, to Galvanic Blast my opponent. Mm. 
you know, I mean, I didn't get there then. And then in the second game of that match, I ran out of my clock. <laughs> so I decked myself in one game, and then the second game, I ran out of clock and just died. Um, think good, play bad. Yeah, exactly. But I think that, you know, this deck feels like it is everywhere on Moto right now, and decks kind of like it feel like they're everywhere, to me anyway. I think I played against myself two or three times in the matches that I managed to do and then played against Urza, which uses similar cards another couple of times. So it's just, I think that if you hear anything else from this particular segment of the dive down this week, this deck, I think it's a believe. (laughs) I, but I think that the world thinks it's a sleeve. Mm -hmm. And so you should be ready to, um, to play against it and be ready to play against Art of World Breach in general in modern for now because somebody's always going to find a shell to uh, to make it happen. The thing that I think is cool about this deck actually is it. I think on its surface it's easier to understand than KCI ever was. I mean, rules wise, it definitely is. The, yeah, you're not you know abusing like a weird corner case and timing and and mana. You know, every card just kind of has a line of text that relates to other cards in the deck. So in a way, you know, I understand what you mean by this class of decks being too hard for you to understand. I think in a lot of ways, this actually also makes a lot of sense, just kind of on on paper. And I like that about this, that it's got kind of this control package, and then it has a combo finish. And that's a lot of decks in the format. Yeah, I agree. I just think there's there's a lot of space taken up in this deck by things that half enable you getting the combo and half enable the combo. And it's all about trying to figure out what to use when, what loop is going to be good when, and all of those kind of things. And it's, it's a lot, I think it just takes a lot of practice. And I think, unfortunately, it probably takes a lot of practice to play against yeah. as well. So I think it's worthwhile anybody who's going to hop in the queues to try to watch some YouTube content or things like that to see how this deck works and when you can really disrupt it. I will say it felt pretty bad to play against Thoughtseize decks, as weird as that sounds, because I have a lot of ability to get cards back out of the graveyard with this deck. Yeah. But it's sometimes it's the time that just made up for it. So in some ways, I think that anything that has a bunch of um, Thoughtseizes in it is going to be pretty good right now just because of how popular this deck is. But like I said, you know, I'm a believe on it. I'm not sure that this is the final version of the deck or that this is a deck that's going to be like totally busted because it is hard to play. So there might not be that much of it. However, we've seen this story before where KCI, nobody played it because it was too hard. And then it got worse and worse and worse. And then it took over the whole meta. Amulet Titan, same thing. I don't know. I might buy these cards. It looks kind of fun to me. <laughs> How far off are you from this deck? More en- enough that it would be expensive. Like I've got two EEs. I don't have any Ambers. I don't have any grinding stations or through the breach. So, <laughs> yeah, I got the lands. How about how about underworld breach? Do you have those? No, no, I don't have any of the cards that matter. I have everything for this deck except for two EEs and two grinding stations. I've got at least one for you, Dave. We can, I can give you one, and they can give you banned. Like every other card, I give you. Are you going to give me grinding station or give me an EE? Oh, the EE. I don't have any grinding stations. I actually have two from bulk boxes that I found. I've got two EEs. All right, we should keep talking after this podcast. Get this deck together. Yeah, we got other things. We'll make some deals. (laughs) All right, Dave, thank you so much. Guys, this was fun because not only did we get to play only the cards that we individually wanted to play, but then we got to make a podcast out of it. So it was informative and enjoyable. I'm sure Dave was looking forward to this, just champing at the bit. 
he was like, ooh, a Jeskai mana base. Ooh, Galvanic Blast and a Counterspell. Surely this is my style of deck. Exactly. I learn again, don't play combo decks. Everyone else who plays combo decks or otherwise, if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. It's a really helpful way to help us find new listeners, get the name of our show out there, and it means a lot to us. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel, where you can hang out and talk to us and other fans of the dive down every day. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive down. Sign up for manatraders using promo code thedivedown, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Flood for letting us use their music. And if you happen to be at SCG Regionals at Pastimes and you don't already know me or Dave, don't hesitate to stop by, say hello. Just look for the oldest person there that'll be, Stan will be standing next to him. (laughs) There's also an outside chance that Dave will be playing a playmat that has a picture of his own face or the Dive Down logo. A younger, less gray version of my face, but... Hey everyone, until next week, get out there and try something new. First, we need to find a shorthand for Dance of the Mance. It's a hard card to say over and over. Yeah, but it's so like alliterative to just say it. Dance of the Mance, Dance of the Mance. I think that's assonance. Is it, uh, is it assonance? Isn't it assonance? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Dance of the Mance, 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 Dance of the Mance.